Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode of Other People is brought to you by Poster Text. Poster Text designs posters for book lovers. They're made entirely out of text from your favorite books. So let me get this straight. You can read lines from your favorite book as you stand up close to the poster, or as you move away, you can see the words coalesce into a beautiful piece of visual artwork. Do you understand how this works? It's incredible. It's a perfect conversation starter for your home, for your office, for your home library, and it's a must-have for any bibliophile. Also, just saying, great gift idea for the book lover in your life. New posters appear every two weeks, so it's likely that you'll find your favorite books posterized at poster text in the collection in the near future. If for some reason you go to postertext.com and you don't see your favorite book in the collection, just submit a book request on the website and Postertext will contact you when your favorite book is ready for purchasing. Go to postertext.com right now and you can get a 20% discount just by listening to this podcast and entering the offer code OTHERPEOPLE14. That's O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L-1-4. Other People 14. Get a 20% discount. This offer expires on January 1st, 2015, so act now. Again, it's a great holiday gift idea. Postertext.com. These are posters made of text. You can hang them on your wall. Go and get one. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is two people talking. This is you half listening. How are you today? Uh, are you half listening? Are you multitasking? Are you doing five things at once? Uh, are you listening while driving? Or are you sitting cross-legged and staring at your digital device, giving this podcast your full attention? Remember uh, that people used to do that, which I think I've uh, mentioned before. Entire families back in the day used to sit around together and stare at the radio while listening to it. I'm not sure if that's even possible anymore. I don't know if humanity can, uh, can do that. Anyhow, uh, my guest today is Mike Bushnell. He is a poet. His latest collection is called Oso. It's available now from Scrambler Books. We had a great talk, and uh, you're going to hear that in just a second. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, I had a good one. 
We had fun. We made the most of it. We sat around. We drank alcohol during the day. We ate too much. We watched football. We did what people do here in America. At least uh, most people. And uh, otherwise, uh, I just want to say that there might be a hiccup in service for the podcast. I think uh, my wife and I, my family, I think we might be moving. It's up in the air at this very second, but I think we might be moving in the very near term and got to move all our shit, do all that, get uh, internet service reconnected and so on and so forth. So I will keep you guys posted via the other people, Twitter at other PPL. uh, Also the uh, other people, uh, Facebook feed, which you can find. It's, I think it's called other people nation. (laughs) O T H E R P P L. And then uh, I'll also post uh, notices on uh, the show's official website, otherppl.com. Okay, so if you if you want to find out what's going on with the schedule, um, you know, just look in any of those places and you should be able to keep up. Uh, as you know, I'm not one for missing uh, scheduled podcast days, but the, these you know circumstances are extraordinary. Got to get moved before the holidays because why not do it now when you know human chaos is at a uh, at a maximum. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns, Depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So, anyhow, uh, I don't think I have anything else. I think I'd just like to get going because I'm I'm, uh, so excited about the conversation I had with Mike. It is a uh, very good conversation, kind of surprising. I don't know if you guys know Mike. Uh, he's a poet. He paints his face. If you're if you're aware of him online, then you're aware that he paints his face because that's sort of how he presents himself in photos online and how he presents himself in readings that he does in front of people. Comes out, his face is painted. But I think uh, you know, as you'll see. Uh, there's a lot, there's a lot of method to that madness. And, uh, he's a very interesting guy, very thoughtful, very well-spoken. So let's get to it. This is Mike Bushnell. His latest collection one more time is called Oso. Yeah, I'm in Austin, Texas. Uh, I'm out here, uh, off of route 2222. Uh, when I look out the, out the windows here at the office, I see a number of mountains and then some uh some wealthier folks houses up on the tops of those mountains what's uh, um, what's the office the office is uh it's where i work it's a place called spice works 
so I'm in one of the phone booths in the office here, so it's a very small meeting room, just me alone. Outside is the video production and creative services teams working on uh, promotional materials and some third-party videos for the company. Okay, so you, um, you have a day job. What do you do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a product manager for, uh, for video here at Spiceworks. I manage the uh, profits and losses of you know uh, a few million dollars in revenue for uh, Spiceworks, working on video campaigns for vendors, uh, webinars, and other kind of registration-based assets. Uh, and I just work with all the teams to make sure that we deliver what's been sold and then work with the sales teams to uh, come up with new products to sell that can either extend our inventory or uh, just make us more money any way, shape, or form. Damn. And then in your spare time, you paint your face and, and uh, write poetry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's kind of like a reverse Batman or something. Yeah, because you sound like really put together. That was a very like eloquent description of a profession that most writers could never muster or – Let's face it, a lot of writers don't have uh, serious professions. <laughs> uh, but you I see- mean, the, yeah, the funniest thing about it is that writing really got me into it because I started distributing stuff online, learned about online communities, niche communities, how you market and target niche communities. Um, so wait, let me, let, me stop you. Into, let, let me stop yeah, you. Let me stop you. How do you market and how do you target and market niche communities? Because I feel like writing, especially of a literary nature, be it nonfiction, fiction, or I guess especially poetry, it's all niche. It's all niche. Like yeah. it is a niche. There, there are varying niche sizes, but in the grand scheme of things, it's fair to call this stuff a niche. So how okay. do you? Everyone's trying to cut through the noise and get you know eyeballs and get readers. How do you do it using the internet? Uh, well, I, I mean, I think the first thing is to set uh, a target audience. So you, you decide who it is that you're trying to reach. You know, uh, for me, when I was younger, I wanted to reach all the writers that I could find online. As I got older, I became less interested in that. Um, how, how old are you now? Uh, now I'm pushing 30. Okay. Wow, you're getting up there. Look out, dude. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, uh, when, I, when I'm younger, I mean, I'm saying that, like, in my late teens, you know, so 10, 12 years ago, right. when the net was a little bit more of a baby and it was a little easier to kind of poke and prod and see immediate response within the smaller community that existed at the time. Uh, so you could learn a lot really, really fast. Um, you know, how much people are going to hate you, how much people are going to love you. Uh, I usually found myself on the, the more conflict-driven end of that equation uh, just because I'm, I'm – it's, it's just where I, I think I have more fun uh, and, and where my, my literary upbringing kind of has always uh, pushed me. So, okay, so you, you find you figure out who you're targeting. You, that has changed as you've gotten older, and then you go out mm-hmm. onto the web, and how do you track them down? You just kind of figure out where they're, what sites they're going to, and then you start like – I mean, is it like as, as rudimentary as like, you know, play with them on the comment boards, interact with them, and uh, uh, is, there yeah. some, is there some secret sauce I'm not aware of? I, I, I don't know that there's a secret sauce, and I know that for some people there's more of a secret sauce than there is for me. For me, it's all just kind of logic-based, you know. I look at it similar to a sales funnel. So you have the messages that you send out into the ether, you just send out to everybody, and that's the, the top of the funnel. That's, that's the folks that are going to hear your message and 
may or may not be interested in it. Uh, as you go further down the funnel, you take different actions based on the level of engagement that that portion of audience has for you. So, you know, top of the funnel is broadcast, just tweeting out there and getting faves and retweets and casual engagements like that. You get someone that then comes to you and writes to you, gives you a direct response, and you're able to focus on the, the human connectivity of that relationship and, and really say, uh, you know, I, I've looked into what you're doing and I love what you're doing here and can you send me more stuff? That's what I would equate to the bottom of the sales funnel where you're in the direct response portion and you're really building a brand advocate for your writing uh, or, or your creations, whatever it is that you're working on. Do you have a, do you have a business degree? Stuff. Do you have a business degree? Uh, no, no, I've, I've, I learned it all from professional wrestling. Why? What do you mean? Like, cause I'm curious, you're using, you're throwing out terms that seem, it seems like business vernacular, like sales funnel, like all of a sudden we're in a funnel and I'm, you know, it's a good, I like the visual, but where does that come from? Are you reading up on this? Like you had to have gotten some info somewhere. I mean, some of, most of it's just experiential in my, in my line of work. Uh, you know, I find a lot of parallels between a person who's on their own, crafting a message, trying to distribute that message to an audience and a company that, you know, like a startup that basically in the market space is on their own and trying to fight for market share. It's, it's very similar except for writer's currency mainly these days is attention or distribution and a business's currency is, you know, actual money. Right. Yeah, it's weird. And, and, but, and I also noticed that like you're comfortable – talking about writing and your own writing and how to get it out there within the context of business, just referring to it comfortably as a brand and market share. Like a lot of writers, I think, shy away from using those kinds of terms because they might think it like perverts what they're trying to do or it just scares them or they just have some sort of prejudice against it. But you don't seem to. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can understand that. I think that um, to shy away from it, just allows people that know more about it to take advantage of you if you're ever in a situation where you are a valuable commodity for a business. So I think that learning about these things and the way that business parallels with creation or creative output is a way to uh, not only safeguard your assets from being distributed by someone else who's not really uh, keeping the object that's been created in mind, um, but it puts you in a position to help others who may not be thinking about those things as much. Yeah. So, okay. So what's your, what are you trying to do? You know, like you're a poet, uh, yeah. slash writer slash face painter. Uh, <laughs> you know, you have to have, I think, you know, it's, there's nothing wrong with being ambitious and being a poet, but I think any poet who's got uh, a realistic sense of the marketplace and what's possible. You know, you have to have some humility in terms of what you can actually do uh, financially as a poet. So uh, do you yeah. agree with that or disagree? Like what, what, what is your objective? Well, my objective as far as finances and writing are concerned is to put myself in a position by working really hard so that I'm free to explore whatever the most cathartic output that I can find is. Um, I, I don't necessarily want to be waiting for a royalty check from a book or hoping that that next marketing situation or 
that that next you know review or or whatever can make or break what my decisions are going to be when I'm alone. So uh, I believe that by working as hard as I can outside of writing, ultimately I'm putting myself in a position where over longer periods of time where I'm working on this stuff, I can you know, really figure out what it is that I need to do with this poetry, with, with this craft to... Um, you know, to, to find what I need in life. And because, just to, and just to not yeah. to have to answer to anybody or not to have to answer to the marketplace. Like you, what you're saying is like working a day job and finding, um, you know, stability financially and uh, enjoyment on that front allows you to kind of just do whatever you want creatively and to follow your bliss and not have to think about, well, is this going to make me a living? Totally. Ab- absolutely. And and also, like, there's an element, I mean, there's a strong element of performance to what you do. I mean, I think some poets, uh, it's less so, you know, they're just kind of writing and publishing or uh, posting online or whatever, but they're not really into the whole performance aspect of it. But you seem to really like that part of it. Uh, for me, it's just, it's, it's all, a, it's a whole body experience. It's a visceral thing. And, uh, I want to put everything I have into writing something down. I want to put everything I have into connecting with an audience one way or another when I'm with them. And I want to do whatever I can to create a memory so that someone who may not be as engaged with poetics or a literary form when they think about it, they're not just thinking about uh, someone really self-conscious and someone who is concerned with their ego. I'm not as concerned about how I come off as I am about leaving a memory that says you can really do a little bit of whatever you want because in the end, it, it you know <laughs> it just doesn't really mean that much in the scale of things uh, unless you're you're connecting with people so why do you paint your face that's like a thing with you that's like a brand it's like a brand identifier that's how i identify you online anyway you're like oh that's the guy <laughs> that's the guy who paints his face it's sort of it's like kind of flaming lipsy wayne coiny you know what i'm saying like there's it, is that what you're thinking about you're thinking about how do i distinguish myself from the pack and ah. give myself like some sort of uh, identifiable brand online or in person? So for that, that really came about when I was first breaking onto the writing scene. I started painting my face when I would do wrestling style promos on other writers. Uh, I had a character called the industry and the industry would talk like this and, you know, like there's a character behind it. And, uh, for a lot of the times that I would paint my face, uh, you know, one portion of it was just sort of, you know, I've just worked eight hours today. I've just worked 10 hours today. I got out of five meetings and now I need to change gears and uh, kind of use the face painting as a a palette cleanser to kind of tell myself that this is something new. I can can Um, see that. I can see that. It's like like putting on your war paint or like whatever, your, your game face. Yeah, but it's mostly close, most closely related to, uh, to, to wrestlers who paint their face. Are you, uh, and you're into wrestling. Are you just like to mock it? Like what's the, are you an actual, did you grow up as a fan of wrestling? Yeah, I, I grew up as a fan. Uh, I think that it's one of the uh, performance-based 
crafts out there where reality and fantasy really blend together in a beautiful way. And so I like to take that particular element of it and bring that into uh, writing and performing the work a little bit. Uh, for me, it's all about that fantasy and reality overlap. Something happens to a wrestler in real life, and now all of a sudden it's written into the script, and you get to see that real reaction on their face when what you're talking about or what they're talking about actually is hurting them to be exposing to this huge crowd. Like, what do you, and, what do you mean? What do you mean? Uh, well, like, you know, one, one example would be uh, uh, the Montreal Screwjob, where uh, Vince McMahon had Bret Hart tap out to a move, uh, to his own finishing move that Shawn Michaels put on him at SummerSlam in his hometown. Before the event, they had discussed that this wouldn't happen, that uh, Bret Hart would retain the belt, and that the next night he would give the belt up. But Vince uh, actually, you know, told the ref that when Sean puts him in Brett's finishing move called the sharpshooter, uh, that he will signal for the bell and give the belt to Sean. Uh, still to this day, there is kind of some people that think a lot of people were in on this and that some people knew about it and everyone always acts like nobody knew about it. Um, uh, other other things are like when people get uh, their wives taken by another wrestler. More recently in not WWE but TNA, there's a wrestler called Kurt Angle, and he had his wife stolen by another wrestler named Jeff Jarrett. Uh, in real she, life, in real life. Yeah, this is in real life. So uh, Kurt Angle's wife divorced Kurt Angle, uh, started dating Jeff Jarrett, is now married to Jeff Jarrett, and all the while, TNA actually had storylines going on where Jarrett was wrestling Angle, uh, and the wife was in the middle of it all. Wait, so they're um, actually like actually they're actually sending these guys out into the ring to to fake wrestle one another, even yep. though in real life one of them stole the other guy's wife. Totally. <laughs> oh god! And the and the wife is like participating as part of the show, like kind of like in a theatrical sense. Yeah, I mean, I would I would say that uh, as as a craft, you know, uh, in these storylines, there's still a lot to be desired uh, as far as gender equality, and this storyline goes show that, um, you know. But yeah, she put herself in the middle of this, and kind of the storyline just you could see Kurt Angle, who's this really strong, you know, physical dude almost breaking down into tears during certain segments because the things that they were being forced by the company that they worked for to talk about in public were really challenging and, <laughs> and personally evocative things that Dude, make for better TV. Vince McMahon is such a, such a uh, sadist, you know, cause that's oh, actually, totally. that's so, it's so good for his brand and his business. Mm -hmm. It's like, if we can find, you know, some guy's real pain and exploit yeah. it, you know, for the purposes of our theatrics, like that's that's like a huge win for him because he gets to kind of milk whatever authenticity he can out of that situation. That's, that's pretty twisted. I didn't realize that was going on. So uh, do you watch this stuff to this day or was this like a phase you went through as a kid and then you just remembered it? Or are you like a lifer? 
Yeah, I mean, I'll still watch it. I'm sure I'll watch it as long as they have a product. You know, it's, there's a term for the kind of watching that I do. It's, it's called a smart mark, someone who's willing to pay money but is really examining kind of behind the curtain what's going on and knows elements of these people's backstories. Uh, you know, again, it's just another niche that has its whole ecosystem that surrounds it where there are websites devoted to, they're called dirt sheets, where they talk about wrestlers' real lives and the business side of how all this stuff is actually coming together. See, that's me. That would be me too. Like I like, to, I like the, the backstory more than I like the story. I like to know what's going on with these guys in their real lives and you know what's happening in their marriages and who hates who and who got screwed out of money like that sounds like what would be of interest to me if i had the time to get into it yeah i, I the funny thing is that like i i also study writing in that way so the poetry that i read the poets that i've built relationships with over the years um, you know, their life stories and imagining them walking through the world, coming up with the forms or the content that they've actually developed, um, you know, that's always been as meaningful to me and I, as, as the writing itself. I've always thought of it as kind of like the secret sauce for actually decoding what formal decisions were made in I couldn't. I, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree. I mean, that's like that's like like me, like th doing this show. I think is uh, an extension of exactly that. You know, like wanting to know who the writers were as people, wanting to like dig into biographies and examine mm -hmm. the actual life. Like that to me is often as satisfying, if not more satisfying, than the work itself. And I don't know totally. what I mean. What what is that? What does that mean <laughs> about <laughs> about us? That like we would we want we want that information more than we want like the art. You know. I mean, I think part of it is that it is the art. You know, I might go up on stage and do these performances, but in the end, someone who's crafting formal objects doesn't just do it on the page. They use those same decision-making processes in everything that they do in their life. Uh, that's why you can kind of reverse engineer the page by witnessing what's going on in their lives or what types of decisions they make day to day. Uh, because it's 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 all there is an aspect of the life as art form that now, once we started documenting artists' lives and now we're into this micro documentation you know period where we get to see even passing thoughts uh, it's it's just going deeper and deeper where the life is a a, a form of art how you live the decisions that you make. Uh, can, can mean just as much as going through anything on a page. Yeah, you ever like I do. That's a good point. Like sometimes people I will notice are, are just really good at life, and like they're good at like planning their fun. You know what I'm saying? Like they're mm -hmm. they're good at throwing parties. They're good at being out and enjoying food or travel or all of the above. You know, like they just seem to relish it. Uh, more than uh, say me, <laughs> uh, you know what I'm saying though. Like sometimes I'm like, I got to be more like that. I think I, I have it a little bit and, and, you know, I have my moments where I'm on top of things, but some people, it just seems like they have this uh, flair for it. Uh, there's probably certain awarenesses that lead one to make certain decisions and, uh, outward they, it, it seems almost like magic because they're always doing the right thing over and over again. Uh, but I think that that's just from 
a painstaking attention to detail uh, across the board on all things that a person does, when you take that, the thing that you love, you take the detail that you pay to the thing that you love, the person that you love, the effort that you put into cultivating that, and you put priority against bringing that into every aspect of your life, uh, I, I think that there are positive ramifications from that. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I think like, I think that like focusing attention, uh, you know, it's, I guess it might sound kind of common, but just the, the ability to focus attention and pay attention to detail and really zero in on something and notice what you like and uh, you know what I'm saying? I feel like that oh, is in okay. short supply. It's hard to do. And people, maybe people uh, of the kind that we're, we're talking about uh, are just able to do that, whereas the rest of us are too scattered. Uh, I mean, I think it's maybe scattered, maybe scared. You know, there, there is a lot to be scared of when you really pay attention. When you pay <laughs> attention to yourself and to what other people are doing, we're always telling each other, things with every action that we take, every micro expression that our face makes. Uh, and if you're going to witness those things, you have to be willing to see things that scare you and that fly in the face of everything you believe and then figure out ways to continue regardless and just get better because of it as opposed to kind of curling up and getting, getting sad as a result. Yeah, yeah, and it's a good point because like you, think, you talk about awareness and like that's a, there, it's a big it's a big thing in the culture right now. People trying to be awake and aware in their lives and mindful and all that. And, um, and then you talk about the opposite of that, which is to sort of, uh, try to anesthetize your pain, be it, you know, usually your psychic or spiritual or whatever pain by, you know, burying yourself in the internet or, um, yeah. in books or in whatever kind of distraction, you know, instead of having yeah. to actually confront yourself and, uh, sometimes uh, like, just like what you're saying, I think, man, like to be awake, is painful because you have to confront this. And, and I think the idea is that you can transcend that pain by leaning into it. Uh, but by running away from it or trying to numb yourself against it, it's eventually going to come back bigger and worse. But there, there are times where I'm thinking to myself, you know what? Like maybe these people playing video games are happier. <laughs> <laughs> like you ever have that thought? Is that too dark? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I, I don't think that that's too dark. I mean, probably on some level they are happier, you know, but I can say that, uh, I, I, I try to look at it not as like, are they day to day happier than I am by choosing to witness? I try to look at it as like when I'm on my deathbed and I'm looking back at what my life has been, am I going to have any regrets? Uh, because I don't want to have regrets. You know, I have been assaulted in a near death experience and I had so many regrets when I thought I was going to bleed out of my face because a glass was smashed through it. Wait, and, what happened? Yeah, I was at a bar. There's a guy there celebrating becoming a cop, and uh, I'd never talked to him before. He threw a drink on my friend. I turned around, was drinking from a glass, and he just smashed the glass in my face and then ran out the back. And what did he cut? Did he cut into, like an artery? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, my lip was severed. It was cut into two two pieces. I had over 120 stitches in my face, uh, over my nose, like into my cheek. Um, and, and Did you almost bleed out? Well, I, I, I passed out from the blood loss. I, 
you know, it, it was just one of those things where if we hadn't gotten pressure on it fast enough and done this and done that, um, then yes, I, I would have bled out from, from my face. Okay. So how old were you? When was this? Um, You know, I, I'm I'm not sure of the exact age at this point, but I think it was probably about eight years ago. Okay, and did they ever catch the guy? Uh, yeah, I mean, they caught him, but he, you know, he was he had gone through the police program, and he was a former uh, marine type guy. He was a huge guy. He was probably like six inches taller than me. Uh, how, but, t- how, uh, t- how tall are you? I'm I'm like five eleven. Okay, so he's a big dude. Yeah, he was a big guy, and uh, you know they caught him, but then they just let him off on on probation because he had never done anything like that before, and you know blah blah blah. Fuck, you didn't have to pay you. Well, yeah, I mean, we did a separate civil case, but you know that money's long gone by now. Damn, somebody does that. Somebody almost kills you, beats the shit out of you, and it splits your face open. Like they should have to pay for like a year of your life at least. Yeah, I mean, I think that it was probably around, I mean, yeah, I saved most of the money for a while, and if I had just lived off of that, then I probably could have lived for, you know, maybe half a year, three quarters of a year tops, um, but, uh, you know, I didn't just go to a civil case with him, there were other, there's another party involved that I can't really specify because we did a settlement um, which makes it so that I can never really talk about it. Okay. So let's get to you on, in the hospital, though, because you said you had, like, this wave of regret. Um, you're in the hospital. You come to. You're stitched up. Um, but it wasn't like you could feel yourself fading or you saw, like, angels or anything. But it was more, no. like, it was more like, I just got fucked up. I lost consciousness. I could have theoretically died. How do I feel about myself? Was it, it, was really, it was really more of, like, as I was passing out in the ambulance, you know, the people in the ambulance in the back are yelling, you know, we got an arterial squirter and like saying all these things that are really scary. And as that's going on and I'm seeing them move above my face and their hands are kind of hovering and taking bloody rags and putting them aside. Um, you know, I start to think about the decisions that I had made in life that are things that I wouldn't want to be my last thought. Uh, you actually, you, know, you actually thought of that stuff in that moment. Yeah, I mean, I thought about people that I'd done wrong and people I wish I could talk to more and tell them how good they were at doing what they were doing. Um, I thought about working harder and trying to figure out a way to be able to give back to the poetics, you know, that had given me all the things that I basically was cherishing in that moment: the awareness, the the knowledge of what catharsis feels like. Um, and, you know, it really crafted my life. It brought me to a point where I, I believe now that there is no amount of work that is working hard enough. Whereas I think in, in before I would say, well, I can just, I can kind of do this because, you know, I work hard enough. So like, it doesn't really matter. Like, uh, whatever. Um, but uh, I think now <laughs> I, I try to you, live by doing the right thing and making sure that I'm, I'm not kind of cutting any corners or sweeping anything under the rug, hiding it from myself. Just, just, ring, ring, just, yeah, just ring every single ounce of goodness out of the time that you have. Uh, 
I mean, maybe it's not even something as black and white as goodness, but put the effort in, you right, know, like right, don't, right. don't leave it out there. Don't, don't leave that thing that you could have done better out there. Don't leave someone hurting. Don't make the decision that you know you can get away with just because you can get away with it. Because at some point you, you don't get away with it. You don't get away with wasting years sitting in front of a screen doing things that don't feed you in some way. God, you, now I feel horrible about myself. <laughs> I don't feel terrible. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think I mean, I, we should all feel terrible. I, I mean, know, like, I know, we I don't, none of us do enough. I'm not saying that I'm kind of some kind of saint. I, I think no, that I, I try to remind to be, myself, I, I, I try to remind myself of this stuff every day. It no. takes every day. Right. No, that's a, okay. That's a good point. A, uh, two things. A, uh, I like this narrative of you like having like a total spiritual awakening uh, after this, uh, this guy hit you. Uh, but I understand like, and this is something that I didn't understand for a long time that I think I understand now when it comes to, um, being awake in life and making the most of life and being like your best self or whatever, uh, is that you have to keep, uh, working at it every day. It's like Mm -hmm. you, you have to keep, uh, working to generate that kind of energy within yourself and do all the little things that, um, help it to exist. You know, it's like, it it, it doesn't come easy. You have to actually work at it. And then just because you have it one day doesn't mean it'll carry over the next day when you wake up, got to go back to work to regenerate it. Um, like it's like a, it's like a kind of energy, you know, and, and it needs to be generated just like electricity needs to be generated. And the same thing goes for writing, you know, like those things that you must do in life day and day and day again. And when the darkness rears its head, you have to fight back, but you have to do that with writing too, because if you ignore the craft and you stop listening for the poetic nature of the day-to-day, then you have to basically start over at a certain point when you haven't done it long enough, and then you've got to work new habits into it and figure out a new way to sustain output, particularly when you're balancing that with a day job or you know the other things that life throws at you. Right. So what do you do? Like, how do you sustain? How do you get all that energy to do your poetry aside from painting your face? I, I think that you break it down and you focus on different elements and you allow yourself to evolve with the situation. Like, I'm my last book was like 480 pages and that took 10 years. And in the last two years, I think my output on the book that I'm currently working on is between five to 600 pages because I've adjusted how I'm writing. In the last two years, I actually haven't written a single word down on a pen or paper or using a typewriter. I use technological intermediaries now to uh, help sustain output, and then I use editing as the main form of my craft. So uh, well, I'll actually... Like vo- yeah, voice-to-text stuff? You're just talking into a machine, and then it's like doing the conversion for you? I mean, that's, that's a part of it. So I'll use a number of different, different voice-to-text to uh, programs. I try to find ones that have really interesting breakpoints where they misinterpret what's being said so that the technology is now entering something new into the equation for me to then think about and refocus through editing. Uh, but, I mean, I'll, I'll do it myself with my voice. 
you know, all uh, just read from a book distant from the microphone or using different methods of uh, kind of entering in that third-party intermediary from technology. Uh, recently, I've been getting into this thing where whenever I'm watching TV, I set up the computer so that I can have a certain amount of output, and it usually takes about five pages of like full end-to-end text output to come out with one uh, one usable edited down uh, section of text that ends up going into the the end book. So, but, uh, how, so what are you doing? You're sitting in front of the TV with your computer doing what? Recording the TV? I'll just be I'm me. I'm just watching TV. The computer is recording the audio from the television, transferring it into text. Then later on in the evening. I already have basically like a, a, a composed canvas to work from, and I just go in there with the knife, and the artistry becomes cutting out all of the meaninglessness, finding the meaningful things that come through the noise, be it from me or the television or you know a book on tape or whatever the source is that I'm working with at that point. Uh, it's it's just a great way to kill the ego, you know. Yeah, like I, yeah. uh, I, it's it's not it's not my message anymore. My message is within the scope of the message that the world has given me, uh, and I can kind of cut down input and output into a single process, uh, as opposed to you know taking three months to read a bunch of stuff and then going down and writing and letting all of those influences go subconscious. And I just don't have time for for that process anymore, like I did when I was youthful and without jobs damn that seems like such a that, that seems very contemporary and smart to me it's like a complete like technologizing of the process and i know that there, there are probably purists out there who would scoff at it but i mean i get it like we live in such a busy world there's so much noise coming at us people are busy you got to work a day job um like this is a clever way to get shit done and an interesting way and um you know, I guess like a just like a nerdy question would be, what's your software like? What do you use? Like, do you do you have one that you really like that does uh, voice to text in a really good way? Uh, I think that some of, like the one that I'm actually using now is just some open source thing that I found from searching and searching and searching. I started out with like Dragon Naturally Speaking, and you know, I went through a lot of those name brand ones. But at this point, I feel like I'm kind of in the the dark web of speech-to-text programs, and I get some really silly output, you know, some things that just don't make any goddamn sense. And I, I think that the the more broken it is, the the better it is, the better my partner is, because I can be hyper-logical and, like, try to be super systematic. So if my landscape that I'm coming from is a little bit more random and a little bit more chaotic then it forces me to go new places. Yeah. I, I mean, by the way, I, I would scoff at the purist, um, you know, as they scoff at me. Right. I, I think that that's, you know, that's, that's key in the process of finding new methods that line up with what is surrounding you. Yeah. You know, let, let them go to their MFA programs. Let them get their degrees. Let them chase a career in the literary arts. You know, I'm, I'm going to be screaming from the underbelly, living the daily grind of the life of everybody else out there, 98% of the world. That's who I'm going to relate to. They can stay in their little club and just touch each other for the rest of their lives. That's fine with me. <laughs> Is there any animosity? you feel angry towards the establishment? 
I, I just think it's silly. I think it limits the ultimate impact that poetics can have uh, on a society, which I think would be much better off if we all sort of sat down and just tried to come up with forms of output and felt more free to chase something not based on the merit or the distribution path, you know, these kind of artifacts that become the crown in this certain, you know, part of the culture. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've always felt like poetry. I mean, I know there's a lot of arguments for difficult poetry and that that's like, you know, that has its merits and having to work for meaning and everything else. Like, uh, you know, I'm not uh, necessarily anti that, but I do whenever the uh, whenever the conversation about, uh, you know, poetry being unpopular, you know, or less important to the culture than it maybe should be, whenever that comes up, part of me thinks like, well, you got to talk to people in a language that they understand. You got to totally. come you got to come at them from a vantage point that feels relatable, like rather than, you know, some high academic vantage point where you're hyper educated Ivy League insular and trading verses with all your other friends who are similar. Like, that's not the answer, you know? It's scared to me. It's scared. It's the same thing as not being aware and witnessing the world around you. You put yourself in a protected situation where you know what people are going to say about it. Uh, You control the niche. You know, it's, it's, it's just a, I I just think it's, it's a pity. Uh, Well, Well, and you know, the other thing about it is that when people are doing stuff that's really difficult and you got to be like a genius to sort of get through all the references and whatever, just to understand what the person's trying to say. I think that sometimes, you know, again, I don't want to speak in universals. Maybe sometimes mm-hmm. that's that's as brilliant as everybody says. But to me, what I think is like, God, that's a great way to protect yourself from criticism. Just make your shit impenetrable. And then people can who are you know who might criticize it would just be like, well, maybe I just don't get it. Or, or you could just be like, or you could say that if they do, you know what I'm saying? Like my yeah. stuff, my stuff is so avant-garde and difficult to crack that like, no wonder the critics don't like it. Like it's a form of armor. I mean, I, I also think of it as just sort of basic because if, 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 you know, writer X was as genius as they want the audience to believe, then they would be capable of crafting that deeper, you know, influence laden message within something that is more relatable to the general audience, layering the messages one on top of the other in a way that doesn't, you know, sacrifice connection to someone who doesn't have history in this area or that area and, you know, still making it magical for someone who does. I, I think that that's the true form of, of brilliance when it comes to literary uh, pursuits is the layers that you can continue to peel back and peel back and peel back. And then in the center, there's just this thing. And just far too often, it's, it's an ego as opposed to a message. Yeah, I know. It's like I feel the same way about teaching. And I guess books in some sense share a similar objective. But I get very frustrated uh, with lack of simplicity and clarity in teaching. I mistrust it, like, reflexively. Yeah. And I think that, like, you know, unnecessary, like saying, you know, saying something complicated in a complicated way is not a sign of uh, somebody who really knows their shit. Or it's a sign of somebody who's really condescending. <laughs> you know? I think, yeah, it's somebody, to me, it's just, it's a mark of the fearful. You know, it's, it's the badge of the fearful is, is jargon to, for jargon's sake, things that you can say in a simpler way. Uh, you know, it's it's just it's it's a tricky thing. You know. Yeah. 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 I mean, and I guess 
I mean, do you think there's any, is there any room in the world for people who just, you know, like that or like really love like big, difficult words? And, you know, I guess there's, a, I guess there's a small niche for that too. I mean, I, I guess I would. Well, there's room, in, there's room in the world for, for, for everything. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's like we said, kind of in the beginning, it's a matter of, you know, first targeting your audience. And if you just want your work to commit and connect to the people who would care about that type of language, like a cook who only targets flavors that foodies can appreciate, right? Uh, there's certainly a place for that, but it's not necessarily going to help people as much as it could. Yeah, yeah. So let's shift gears. I, I don't know anything about you yet. Like, where are you from? Are you from Texas? Uh, no, I've I've only been here for about six months. Uh, you know, I've, for the last like five years or so, I was in New York City. Um, I went to high school at uh, a writing school, it was a, uh, Interlochen Arts Academy, where most of the things that we were just talking about had their seeds planted. Um, Wait, in 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 New York City? No, that was in Michigan. So, you, so where are you, where are you from? I'm from Virginia. I'm from Manassas, Virginia, birthplace of the Civil War. Yeah, no, I think I hiked right through there. Uh, I sh- I, I mean, and I'm laughing as I say it because people give me shit for how often I talk about my time on the Appalachian Trail. But <laughs> I think I like remember like it was it was super cool and sort of creepy because you're walking down the trail and then like there's a sign and it's like, you know, sixty thousand people died in this field and it sort yeah. of, it sort of hits home. But that was, I think the trail runs right through Manassas. Yeah, it does. And yes, that's the right number. 60,000 people did die during, so it's during the Civil War. Wait, uh, I got the number right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, shit, I just, I just pulled that out of the air. That's yeah, no, 60,000 60, people died in Manassas during the course of the Civil War. Uh, there were two battles of Manassas or battles of Bull Run, depending on like which, which side of history you're on there. Um, but, you know, like a lot of places when you're growing up, they have like barn parties or field parties. And uh, in Manassas, you have battlefield parties where you, <laughs> oh, you, you take a keg out to the battlefield <laughs> in the middle of the night and the fog's rolling in. And yeah. you, you can feel the, the, the weight of the lives in the ground. Damn. Uh, That's it, dark, you, dude. Yeah. It's, you become connected to history when you grow up in a place like Manassas. So, it sort of harsh as your buzz a little bit i would imagine you're just starting to have some fun and then you're like damn like <laughs> there's a lot of, there's a lot of bone meal in this ground well it might it might harsh it but i think that what it ended up doing was just intensifying it a little bit you know we i like I, when i read poetry i wear war paint yes right <laughs> you know i grew up in the battlefields this people, is people uh, are like losing their virginity in high school on, on like yeah. a graveyard that's intense yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, but you went to Michigan. You went, you went away to boarding school? Is that what you did? Yeah. Yeah, I was in boarding school in Michigan for, for high school. Okay. So uh, did you get sent away because you were a problem child or, like, you, you come from an affluent family and they could afford to send you away or what, what no, happened? No, so, so I was uh, – when I was growing up, I was a year-round baseball player. I was, like, an all-state first baseman and pitcher and went to national-level competitions and played in the Little League World Series and hit a couple home runs in the Little League World Series field. And then when I got into high school – you know, everyone was starting to drink and things just were like the culture was really challenging. And I kind of made a decision to give up baseball 
and start to study writing and kind of give all the energy that I'd put into being a year-round baseball player into studying poetry. What did your so, What did your parents think about this? What do they do? Well, my my dad my dad was a little concerned. Uh, you know, he <laughs> he's liked. Like, he's like, I liked you better when you were hitting home runs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I you know, I think he likes it all the same now. But uh, you know, at, at that point, yeah, he did. He did kind of want me to kind of go to college for baseball and do this for baseball and do that for baseball because I was, you know, I was really active. It was it was something that I was good at. Um, but I just didn't have it in my heart anymore, and I knew where it would really take me, which would have been closer to working at a gas station than doing what I'm doing now. Wait, but that um, see that that seems crazy. Like you're like a, a like a national level good baseball player, and you you turn to po- you know to poetry, thinking like this is going to lead me away from working a shit job. Like usually, I think it would be the opposite. <laughs> like, like I could play pro baseball and have like women and millions of dollars and like a giant mansion on a lake, and instead you decided like poetry was your ticket. Well, I think that there are more people out in the world who are national level baseball players in high school than there are people who spend hours and hours a day connecting to history and studying forms and trying to do something with their mind. So I thought it was a less crowded space with less competition. Uh, Probably still, true. Probably I still true. think that is true. So what, uh, so, so what did your parents – okay, so you, 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 how old are you when you make this decision? You're um, eighth grade? Yeah, I was, I was in ninth grade at the time. So I did my first year in, in uh, high school, and then the, the rest of my high school was in boarding school. Okay, so when, what do your folks do? Like are they uh, literary or artistic? No, no. My, my mom is a, a – she did – well, my mom now is paralyzed from the neck down, so she doesn't do anything what now. Happened? What happened? Uh, she had rheumatoid arthritis, and there was uh, bacteria that got into her bloodstream, got into her spine, uh, and the doctors didn't see it fast enough, so they ended up having to take out like 12 of her vertebrae, uh, leaving leaving her uh, paralyzed. She still has her arms, so I suppose it's more like the shoulders down. She can use her arms, she can move her neck, but she doesn't have her body or her legs. But before that, she was a, a like... Um, service worker for you know like untrimetries and families with people that had aids she would work with them to get them social services and that type of thing so a Uh, a do-gooder yeah she was a do-gooder and my dad uh he was in newspapers when he was growing up he was uh newspaper writer, editor, that kind of thing, eventually went to a company called Reuters where he did a deal with AOL and brought uh, pictures to AOL for the first time. Um, But, you know, he eventually got fired from that job and moved into another job, and he's had to reinvent himself a number of times. He's one of my heroes. My mother is obviously one of my heroes as well. Yeah. but I ended up getting a scholarship for for the boarding school. Uh, okay. I entered a I entered a contest, and that kind of started the the conversation. See, okay, that's a, a poetry contest. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay, so that, that there's a level of gumption and um, self directed uh, behavior that's unusual for somebody that age. You know, like to know that that's what you're into, and to say to yourself, like, I'm willing to move across the country and leave home. And not live with my folks. Not a lot of people that age would do that. 
Well, I'm always listening for the call, Brad, you know, and I heard the call. Uh, and, and when I hear the call, I try to follow the call. That's one of the things that I, I have lived by uh, for as long as I can remember. Are you a religious person? Uh, no, no, not 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 uh, technically religious. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm spiritual either. Uh, I have complex ways of giving meaning to the world, uh, personal kind of methods. Uh, like what? Uh, well, I mean, I kind of like to look at the universe uh, and the dark matter, the dark energy of the universe, sort of more similarly to a brain. I like to look at humans as uh, elements within that overall body that are attempting to discover certain aspects uh, of that overall body through exploration, through feeling pain, witnessing all these various things. Um, I... I would say that I'm more of a study of mythology and believer in the power of mythology um, than I am of general religion, which I kind of dump into the mythological bucket. Okay. I don't understand. Like mythology, like Greek mythology? Like you like all of it, like human history, yeah. the myths that people yeah. come up with. Totally. Okay. The comic books, they're all the all the stories, all the mythic stories, the the hero's journey and, you know, Krishnamurti back in the 70s. You know, there's there's a lot of stuff that I've gotten into, um, but I don't necessarily equate it with religion. I think I'm, I'm a devout poet now, but I've always kind of been working my way towards being a devout being. And uh, now the vehicle for me is poetics, and so I use poetics as a way to frame what it is that that I try to live up to, um, but there's there's you know not a notion of God that drives such a thing. Other than the universe is God or you are God, um, those those types of things are more theoretically acceptable to me than any of the stories that I've heard in this. Yeah. Okay. Well, so then you go to I want to hear about Interlochen. You go to Michigan on this scholarship. Yeah. Your study. It's a writing high school. Yeah, well, it's a it's a it's an arts academy. So there's music majors, writing majors, theater majors, visual arts majors, and we're all up in these dorm rooms in Interlochen, Michigan, where it gets 200 inches of snow a year. That's what is that northern Michigan? Uh, it's if if you do the two hands thing, and anyone from Michigan or that area will really know it's uh, it's the bottom mitt, and it's right at the top near Lake Michigan. Okay. Wow, and you had a good time there. It was a complicated time. I learned a lot, and I studied a lot. Uh, one of my favorite stories there is that, like, I at one point took over, so they had practice rooms in the basement. Um, I took over a bathroom in the basement to turn it into my office. I brought in a bookshelf and brought my books down there and put a piece of wood over the sink and put a cushion on the toilet and shoveled snow into the the window area so that I could put sodas up there and have like a makeshift fridge. Uh, <laughs> and like I, I went around to all the people who used the practice rooms and got them to sign a petition saying it was okay for me to use the bathroom as my office. Uh, eventually the people who ran the dorm came downstairs and said, uh, yeah, you really can't use 
the bathroom as your office anymore. And I was like, what? No, you, you got to let me use the bathroom as the office. Look, <laughs> I got this petition and everybody signed it and they said it was okay. And I don't really know what you want me to do. You're going to give all these musicians this space to practice, but I can't have anywhere to practice my craft. Uh, and that's a good point. Well, they just ex- they expect you to be like what in your room with like your roommate <laughs> trying to focus on yeah. writing something. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it wasn't very well thought out, but the musicians had more clout because they uh, that's that's really their their highest uh, uh, dollar getter. They do more to bring prestige back to Interlock, and you know, mostly music is their big big one. Right. Um, so, so, so you you were there. It was complicated. You presumably graduated, and then you went on to college. Uh, yeah, went to college in Massachusetts. Uh, Whereabouts? Uh, it, it was in Amherst. I went to Hampshire College. Okay, yeah, that's like a it's like a really funky liberal arts like mm-hmm. it, like they even like I mean that's like known as like a like among a liberal liberal you know liberal arts colleges in the Northeast like Hampshire is uh, distinguished, right? Yeah, I mean, they were one of the first. Um, I, I went there because you could design your own course. Well, that's you know? what I mean. And, that's what I mean. Yeah. It's, like, it's like really crunchy. Yeah, yeah, it is. Certainly a, a very liberal art school. I was at school with a bunch of hippies and, you know, uh, probably one of the only people to go into business the way that I have from the people that I know uh, that I went to college with. Um, but there I was, you know, able to, again, focus on writing and applying it in different ways. I ended up leaving with a liberal arts degree with a focus on creative writing, advertising, and computer studies. And those three focuses through the liberal arts degree really kind of opened the door a crack for me to uh, start getting into uh, the media business. And, you know, now I'm more on the business side of things. But uh, that's that's where it all kind of started. The the you've opening actually, of you've the actually gate. yeah you've actually used your degrees I and mean, it makes perfect yeah. sense. And it also seems like a really uh, good education for a writer and I guess a, in this case a poet going into the world at the time that you did. You know when it comes to the internet and it comes to how self directed you have to be in terms of your own marketing and in terms of getting the word out about your own work, particularly in the early phases of your career. I mean. Uh, and then the computer science degree. I mean, all of that stuff. Uh, I wish I had. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I was. I, I'm, a, I'm a bit older than you, so, it, like, the internet was kind of just coming online when I was in college. But, uh, you know, to have those skills is important. It's almost like I think at this point it's probably just uh, what? Do, what do you call it? Uh, mandatory. You know, everybody's gonna. Yeah. Know, everybody's gonna know that stuff. My daughter's gonna have. <laughs> like they're going to have to take coding classes. I would. I, would oh, I, I absolutely agree. Yeah. Everyone, everyone should learn code. It's uh, you should learn English, Spanish, and code. Those are the most important languages right now. Right. So okay. So you you uh, you know then you, in your twenties you lived where you leave uh, Hampshire and do you stick around in Massachusetts or do you go elsewhere? Yeah, I bounced around in Massachusetts, Connecticut, and then into New York for mm-hmm. most of my twenties. Fun to live in the city in your twenties. It, it was fun to live in the city. Uh, it was it was great. You know, I there are some people and places there that I never would have you know had exposure to or known you know anything about the way that things can be in the city. Uh, it, it's also a lot more similar to living anywhere than you know, at least for me. You know, because I'm not I'm not going out and partying. I don't really care about that part as much. If I'm going out, I'm usually going to a reading or going to do a reading. 
Um, so you never have done drugs or drank heavily or had a period like that in your life? I mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that I did nothing like that, but I certainly wouldn't have done it with a whole bunch of weird people, randos. You know, I'm 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 more on a, a spirit quest than I am on a, a social journey. Who influenced you? Like, why do you like? Who set you on this journey? Were there writers that you can point to, or teachers you can point to, who really, um, you know, helped to give you your creative and uh, you know spirit DNA? Uh, I mean, teachers, not so much. I always would battle against my teachers. Um, you know, I would get in arguments with them, not be their favorite person, just sort of like disagree with them. Uh, there are certainly writers and thinkers out there that heavily influenced me. Um, I think that the the one that I had the biggest relationship with in high school was, was Elliot, T.S. Elliot, who worked as a banker and, uh, you know, did his work on the side. And there's always some sort of uh, spiritual element to what he did. Um, you know, I got into Joseph Campbell a lot and the hero's journey, uh, the, the unify, and that brought my notions of unified myth um, in, into uh, – you know, the, my final years in high school and then into college, I would say that Frank Stanford was another uh, big influence, bringing in more of the care for uh, common experiences and pop culture being being infused into the work. Uh, William Carlos Williams, the way that he was a doctor, uh, those things, you know, uh, basically everyone that I really cared about that was a creator, uh, Lauren Niedeker, you know, uh, Charles Reznikoff, these, these are all folks who have day jobs and write based on the experiences that they cultivated there. Uh, so, so that's a big part of where I come from on that front. Um, you know, but for the most part, I, 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 I just try to, uh, do what feels right and, and kind of figure it out uh, later. You know, like I think that Joseph Campbell is the one who taught me that what I was doing was following the call, but we all just sort of have this, this different distant voice that we hear echoing and we hear when we lay down and we hear when we think something terrible is going to happen. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, uh, and again, just to circle back around to the parents, you know, my father and my mother uh, are some of the biggest influences that I have. You know, all the care to chase these things down and try to figure these things out, you know, I, I can trace that back to them 100%. Well, and so like, yeah, so you're an eighth grader or ninth grader and you're deciding that you want to go off and be a writer. Like, was that T.S. Eliot? Like, what were you reading? Like, what what fuels that decision? And like... Do you know what I'm saying? Like that's yeah, so, well, that decision, I, I would say that that decision was really just, I, I don't know, the only writer who I really had a relationship with at, at, at that point was Charles Simic. Uh, and I also had found uh, this chat room called The Poet's Nook on AOL. Uh, I guess it was maybe more of like a, no, so it was a message board called The Poet's Nook, and it had a number of different chat rooms. Uh, and you would go in there and sort of share poems line by line in the chat room, and then people would comment on them and talk about them. 
after I did that for a while, I put together a package of the poems that I had written. I gave them to a girlfriend tied with ribbon. I was going to say, you got to be using this to get chicks. Like you got <laughs> the face painting, the line by line, like the chat rooms like that. There's that's an element of it, too. Right. Uh, I, I don't know, really. Like, um, Are you married? I, I mean, my, no. So my girlfriend is, is Anna Caret. Uh, we're up here in Austin together. You interviewed her a little oh, while ago. Oh, yeah. So she, okay, so she came with you to Texas. Yeah, well, we kind of met. She was in San Diego at the time, for the, and I was in New York, and we met in the middle of the country here, and we moved in together, and we I, I spent every day together. I thought it was Carete, not Caret. I thought, like, is Caret, like, yeah. the, the, that's the Americanization of it. I, yeah, I, 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 went, I would say. I, I would went, say that's right. Okay, I went through the, the reason I even bring it up is because I went through this with her, like, uh, at length, trying to get the pronunciation right, and she was making fun of my uh, inability to pronounce it correctly. Well, that's, that's why I just say it. Uh, you know, correct, because I can say that. Right. She's going to make fun of me no matter how I say it, so yeah. <laughs> I might as well say it the way I can say it comfortably. Damn. Okay. So, yeah. And so you guys are together. She moved She moved with you. This is getting serious then. Yeah. Yeah. We've been together for a couple of years now. Damn, dude. You better. Are you going to marry her? Um, I hope so. That's what we're working towards. All right. I don't mean gotta, to put you. I don't mean to put you on the spot. Got to put. <laughs> got to put the money in the bank. You know, it's like we got to take step by step. And uh, I, I, and we both come from a family environment. And when we start our family, we're gonna do it right. And we're we're gonna take our time to make sure that we, you know, build up the best family that that we can together. Learn each other's ins and outs and go from there damn dude you're so well uh you're you're a very composed human being i was expecting a little bit more crazy with the face paint but you've got your shit together well that's the idea right is that you go out there and you allow people to think that you're this wild thing so that sure this can be a crazy thing that's all abandoned i'm i'm just trying to bring to life an archetype that's calculated see me it's the opposite like people look at me and they're like oh he looks like fairly square he looks like he's a solid guy he's got his shit together but in reality it's fucking chaos it's a mess (laughs) (laughs) you look under that rock and it's a bunch of fucking potato bugs and worms well Uh, we all have we all have our moments on the upside and the down right right (laughs) Uh, okay, so Salisbury, what is that? Uh, so going back to Interlochen, um, there was a, a soccer team called the Fighting Blueberries because our uniform was a light blue shirt with dark blue pants. Um, and this was the first sports team that Interlochen had ever had. So we went and we played in this like winter soccer league, indoor soccer, and I was one of the coaches of the team uh, before each game. So I would wear a suit and I had this like megaphone and before each game I would stand up and like most of the team was from around the world. So there were people that spoke Russian, people that spoke Japanese, people that spoke all these different languages. And I would get up there with the megaphone and I would like just kind of yell movie speeches. So like I'd go up there and I'd yell the speech from Independence Day or something <laughs> and everyone at the end, I'd finish with like the final gesture for the speech and then all the people that didn't really understand a word that I just said would be like, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, let's go kick some butt. <laughs> and, uh, and then so after one of those games, a local news station interviewed me as one of the coaches asking me about uh, the team. And uh, I was there with a... A man from Turkmenistan. His name is uh, Farhad Hudyev, 
and uh, I had him uh, had one arm around him, and they asked me what my name was. I told them Salisbury Bushnell, and I was on the local news uh, as Salisbury Bushnell, uh, <laughs> and then I made my Facebook page a few months later and just used that name because I thought that that was a good way to not uh, connect my social media presence to my actual name. Okay. So now I know it's been bothering yeah. me for, it's been bothering me ever since I've <laughs> been aware of your internet presence. I'm like, what the fuck is Salisbury Bush now? Yeah, that's, it's just an artifact from history that I've never really, uh, never really changed. Okay. Nobody really knows. And when was the now first, when was the first time you painted your face? Uh, so first time I painted my face was at a reading at Hampshire uh, me and two of my friends were doing like our graduation style reading. Uh, and we did this thing where because we had been doing promos on writers like Talin, No Cicero, Sam Pink, um, you know, those guys, we had, we had been kind of trolling them in their comment sections and then making videos where we're doing these wrestling style promos. And so we took that and we put it into a, a storyline narrative where the three of us started out as like great friends and then we had this breakdown into full jealousy and stuff and uh so the first part was like three promos that we had filmed and like a storyline element where we had crowd interaction and then the second part was a thing where we all kind of read from things that we were working on at the time uh i read from something i don't i'm not even sure what it was at this point um, but I wore my face paint because I was my wrestling character at that event. Um, and then later on, as I would go to readings in Massachusetts and then in New York, uh, the face paint just sort of developed, and I would wear it to events, most events in New York. Um, part of it was that memory thing. Part of it was like if they didn't know my name, they would at least recognize who I was without having to recognize my face on a personal level. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I, I just did it then. You know, I would paint my face in the subway on the way from work to the event. I would paint my <laughs> face in the bathroom when I got there, uh, in the backyard by the light of a cell phone. Like, uh, then I went on tour with Scott McClanahan, Sam Pink, Megan Boyle, uh, Jordan Castro and Mallory Witten. That's, that's a burly. That's a burly crew. <laughs> yeah, continued to do the face paint there. Did you, did uh, you, you, were, you were you part of that group that did DMT? No, no, I went back to the hotel. Oh, you did. You didn't take yeah. part in that. Okay. No, they they a few of them went there. I went back to the hotel with Scott. I think that we uh, just went to bed. You did. <laughs> You're like fuck this. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. I don't need to see the machine elves. I'm going to bed. At yeah, the, yeah. At the motor you. lodge. <laughs> All right, totally. and now like so, like yeah. So and if any of that, that you kind of own this though. That's kind of good for your brand. Like you're the you're the poet who paints his face. Uh, I sort of want you know going back to the wrestling thing. I sort of want another young poet to start rising up and painting his face, and then you guys can go at each other. Like that would be sort of awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm never against it. You know, uh, controversy creates cash, or in this case, uh, you know, clicks, likes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whatever tweets. your currency is. Yeah. <laughs> All right, dude. Well, it's great talking with you, and uh, I appreciate the candor and, and just uh, just had a lot of fun with it. So I wish you, I wish you the best of luck with uh, everything. Yeah, absolutely, Brad. It's been a complete pleasure. Uh, I didn't really know what we would be talking about, so I'm glad that we sort of talked about all of it. 
All right, guys, there you go. That's Mike Bushnell, great guest, uh, terrific poet. Go get his latest collection. It's called Oso. It's out there now from Scrambler Books. You can follow Mike on Twitter. His handle over there is at I am a party. And uh, you can find uh, you can find out more info about his book at thescrambler.com. Let me double check that. Yeah, thescrambler.com. Uh, I think that's it, right? That's all the info about Mike. Uh, oh, don't thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. I got to thank the the Kill Rockstars people for the music. Check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app. Here's my holiday gift idea pitch. Are you ready? Here's my listener support pitch. This show needs your support in order to continue. Uh, so at the holidays, it seems like a good time to make a couple of suggestions. One, uh, other people premium. What that means is you get to stream everything. You have access to all 330-something episodes. You can give away premium subscriptions as a gift to friends if they want to uh, have good stuff to listen to. If they're into books and authors and like to listen to such things. Just get the, uh, get the app. The app is free. Once you have the app, you can sign up for a premium subscription right there within the app. It's very cheap. You sign up for a year at $0.75 cents a month. It's an easy gift. It's cheap. It's like $11. And then the other option is to sign up for the Nervous Breakdown Book Club over at thenervousbreakdown.com. Click on Book Club in the menu bar. $9.99 a month, and you get a brand new book delivered to your door every 30 days great way to support this show great gift idea gift that keeps on giving all year long just go to the nervousbreakdown.com and click on book club in the menu bar if you want to email me the address is letters at other letters at other you can follow the show on twitter at other ppl and then uh, otherwise i hope you're hanging in there hope you had a good thanksgiving hope you're uh, bearing down for the big uh, push through uh, hanukkah and christmas Kwanzaa. I'm going to be packing shit up hopefully over the next few days. It's going to be hell. Throw my back out. Get angry. All that stuff. So you can imagine me doing that. I guess it's a good time of year to move. I mean, what, you know, when is a good time of year to move? Please remember that Theodore Roosevelt once called Tolstoy, quote, a social and moral pervert and that Catherine Ann Porter died of Alzheimer's disease. That's all for now. Thanks again to Mike Bushnell. Go get his book. Thanks to you guys for listening. And uh, I will be back soon with another episode, another conversation. I don't know when it's going to happen, but it'll happen uh, eventually. Stay tuned to the Twitter feed and the website and the Facebook page. Stay tuned to my feeds. (laughs) 